Book One, Chapter Nine of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Nine, A Discovery. The friendship of Robert had gained Shargar the favorable notice of others of the school public. These were chiefly of those who came from the country ready to follow an example set them by a town boy. When his desertion was known, moved both by their compassion for him and their respect for Robert, they began to give him some portion of the dinner they brought with them, and never in his life had Shargar fared so well as for the first week after he had been cast upon the world. But in proportion as their interest faded with the novelty, so their appetites reasserted former claims of use and want, and Shargar began once more to feel the pangs of hunger. For all that Robert could manage to procure for him, without attracting the attention he was so anxious to avoid, was little more than sufficient to keep his hunger alive, Shargar being gifted with a great appetite, and Robert having no allowance of pocket-money from his grandmother. The three pence he had been able to spend on him were what remained of six pence Mr. Innes had given him for an exercise which he wrote in blank verse instead of in prose, an achievement of which the schoolmaster was proud, both from his reverence for Milton and from his inability to compose a metrical line himself, and how and when he should ever possess another penny was even unimaginable. Shargar's shilling was likewise spent so robert could but go on pocketing instead of eating all that he dared watching anxiously for opportunity of evading the eyes of his grandmother on her dimness of sight however he depended too confidently after all for either she was not so blind as he thought she was or she made up for the defect of her vision by the keenness of her observation she saw enough to cause her considerable annoyance though it suggested nothing inconsistent with rectitude on the part of the boy further than that there was something underhand going on one supposition after another arose in the old lady's brain and one after another was dismissed as improbable first she tried to persuade herself that he wanted to take the provisions to school with him and eat them there a proceeding of which she certainly did not approve but for the reproof of which she was unwilling to betray the loopholes of her eyes Next, she concluded for half a day that he must have a pair of rabbits hidden away in some nook or other, possibly in the little strip of garden belonging to the house. And so conjecture followed conjecture for a whole week, during which, strange to say, not even Betty knew that Shargar slept in the house. For so careful and watchful were the two boys that although she could not help suspecting something from the expression and behavior of Robert, what that something might be she could not imagine nor had she and her mistress as yet exchanged confidences on the subject. Her observation coincided with that of her mistress as to the disappearance of odds and ends of eatables, potatoes, cold porridge, bits of oat-cake, and even on one occasion when Shargar happened to be especially ravenous, a yellow or cured and half-dried haddock, which the lad devoured raw, vanished from her domain. He went to school in the morning smelling so strong, in consequence, that they told him he must have been passing the night in Scroggy's cart, and not on his horse's back this time. The boys kept their secret well. One evening, towards the end of the week, Robert, after seeing Shargar disposed of for the night,
proceeded to carry out a project which had grown in his brain within the last two days, in consequence of an occurrence with which his relation to Shargar had had something to do. It was this. The housing of Shargar in the garret had led Robert to make a close acquaintance with the place. He was familiar with all the outs and ins of the little room which he considered his own, for that was a civilized, being a plastered, sealed, and comparatively well-lighted little room, but not with the other, which was three times its size, very badly lighted, and showing the naked couples from the roof-tree to floor. Besides, it contained no end of dark corners, with which his childish imagination had associated undefined horrors, assuming now one shape, now another. Also, there were several closets in it, constructed in the angles of the place, and several chests, two of which he had ventured to peep into. But although he had found them filled, not with bones as he had expected, but one with papers and one with garments, he had yet dared to carry his researches no farther. One evening, however, when Betty was out, and he had got hold of her candle and gone up to keep Shargar company for a few minutes, a sudden impulse seized him to have a peep into all the closets. One of them he knew a little about, as containing, amongst other things, his father's coat with the gilt buttons, and his great-grandfather's kilt, as well as other garments useful to Shargar. Now he would see what was in the rest. He did not find anything very interesting, however, till he arrived at the last. Out of it he drew a long, queer-shaped box into the light of Betty's dip. "'Look here, Shargar,' he said under his breath, for they never dared to speak aloud in these precincts. "'Look here. What can there be in this box? Is it a bairnie's coffin, do you think? Look at it.' In this case Shargar, having roamed the country a good deal more than Robert, and having been present at some merry-makings with his mother, of which there were comparatively few in that countryside, was better informed than his friend. "'Eh, Bob, do not ye ken what that is? I thought ye kent all thing.' "'That's a fiddle.' "'That's stuff and nonsense, Shargar. "'Do you think I did not ken a fiddle when I see on? "'Stuff and nonsense yourself,' cried Shargar, in indignation from the bed. "'Give us a hold of it.' Robert handed him the case. Shargar undid the hooks in a moment, and revealed the creature lying in its shell like a boiled bivalve. "'I tell you so,' he exclaimed triumphantly. "'Maybe you'll trust me next time.' And I tell to you, retorted Robert, with an equivocation altogether unworthy of his growing honesty, I was sure that could not be a fiddle. There's the fiddle in the heart of it. Losh, I mind new. It mount be my grandfather's fiddle, as I have heard tell of. Not to know a fiddle case, reflected Shargar, with as much of contempt as it was possible for him to show. I tell you what, Shargar, returned Robert, indignantly, you may know the box of a fiddle better nor I do, but devil have me given I do not know the fiddle itself rather better nor ye do in a fortnight from this time. I's take it to Double Sanny, and he can play the fiddle fine, and I'll play it too, or the devil's be in it. Ha, hey, man, that'll be grand, cried Shargar, incapable of jealousy. We can go on to make all the markets together and gather halfpence. To this anticipation Robert returned no reply. For hearing Betty come in, he judged it time to restore the violin to its case, and Betty's candle to the kitchen, lest she should invade the upper regions in search of it. But that very night he managed to have an interview with Dubal Sanny, the shoemaker, 
and it was arranged between them that Robert should bring his violin on the evening at which my story has now arrived. Whatever motive he had for seeking to commence the study of music, it holds even in more important matters that, if the thing pursued be good, there is a hope of the pursuit purifying the motive, and Robert no sooner heard the fiddle utter a few mournful sounds in the hands of the shoemaker, who was no contemptible performer, than he longed to establish such a relation between himself and the strange instrument, that, dumb and deaf as it had been to him hitherto, it would respond to his touch also, and tell him the secrets of its queerly twisted skull, full of sweet sounds instead of brains. From that moment he would be a musician for music's own sake, and forget utterly what had appeared to him, though I doubt if it was the sole motive of his desire to learn, namely the necessity of retaining his superiority over Shargar. What added considerably to the excitement of his feelings on the occasion was the expression of reverence, almost of awe, with which the shoemaker took the instrument from its case, and the tenderness with which he handled it. The fact was that he had not had a violin in his hands for nearly a year, having been compelled upon his own in order to alleviate the sickness brought on his wife by his own ill-treatment of her once that he had come home drunk from a wedding. It was strange to think that such dirty hands should be able to bring such sounds out of the instrument the moment he got it safely cuddled under his cheek. So dirty were they, that it was said Dubal Sandy never required to carry any rosin with him for fiddler's need, his own fingers having always enough upon them for one bow at least. Yet the points of those fingers never lost the delicacy of their touch. Some people thought this was in virtue of their being washed only once a week, a custom Alexander justified on the ground that, in a trade like his, it was of no use to wash oftener, for he would be just as dirty again before night. The moment he began to play, the face of the shoemaker grew ecstatic. He stopped at the very first note, notwithstanding, let fall his arms, the one with the bow, the other with the violin at his sides, and said with a deep-drawn respiration and lengthened utterance, Eh! Then after a pause, during which he stood motionless, The crater mount be a cry mony, here till her, he added, drawing another long note. Then, after another pause, she's a straddle varius, at least, here till her. I never had such a combination of timber and catgut atween my claws afore. As to its being a Stradivarius, or even a Cremona at all, the testimony of Dubal Sandy was not worth much on the point. But the shoemaker's admiration roused in the boy's mind a reverence for the individual instrument which he never lost. From that day the two were friends. Suddenly the shoemaker started off at full speed in a strathsby, which was soon lost in the wail of a highland psalm-tune, giving place to such a wife as Willie had, and on he went without pause till Robert dared not stop any longer. The fiddle had betwitched the fiddler. "'Come as often as ye like, Robert, giving ye fest the laddie with you,' said the shoemaker." and he stroked the back of the violin tenderly with his open palm. "'But would ye have any objection to the let it lie aside ye, and let me come when I can?' "'Jection, laddie! I would as soon object to letting my own wife lie aside me.' "'Ay,' said Robert, seized with some anxiety about the violin as he remembered the fate of the wife. "'But ye can, Elspeth comes off of the war sometimes.' 
Softened by the proximity of the wonderful violin, and stung afresh by the boy's words, as his conscience had often stung him before, for he loved his wife dearly, save when the demon of drink possessed him, the tears rose in Elshender's eyes. He held out the violin to Robert, saying with unsteady voice, Ha! take her away. I did not deserve to have such a thing in my hoose. But hear me, Robert, and let hearing be believing. I never was so drunk but I could tune my fiddle. More by token, aunts, they found me lying on my back in the quarry, and the water, they say, was o'er all but the mound of me. But I was holding my fiddle up aboon my head, and the devil a spark of water upon her. It's a pity your wife was not your fiddle, then, Sanny, said Robert, with more presumption than wit. Deed, you're in the right there, Robert. Here, take your fiddle. Deed, no, returned Robert. I mount just trust to you, Sanders. I cannot bide longer the night, but maybe you'll tell me who to hold her the next time at I come, will ye? That I will, Robert. Come when ye like. And given ye come all on and could play this fiddle, as this fiddle deserves to be played, you'll do me credit. Ye mind what that sump Lumley said to me the other night, Sanders, about my grandfather? Ay, well enough, a dish of drucken havers. It was true enough about my great-grandfather, though. No, was it really? Ay, he was the best piper in the regiment at Culloden. Given they had a fountain as he piped it, there would have been another tale to tell. And he was tune-piper forby, just like you, Sanders, after they took from him at all he had. Nah, heard ye ever the like of that? Well, what would have thought it? Faith, me mount have you fiddle as well as your looky daddy pippet. But here's the king of Bashan coming after his boots, and them no half done yet, exclaimed Dubal Sanny, settling in haste to his all. He'll be roaring more like a bull of the country than the king of it. As Robert departed, Peter Og came in, and as he passed the window he heard the shoemaker averring, I have not risen from my stool since on o'clock, but there's a sight to be done to them, Mr. Og. Indeed, Alexander Ab Alexandro, as Mr. Innes facetiously styled him, was, in more ways than one, worthy of the name Dubal. There seemed to be two natures in the man, which all his music had not yet been able to blend. End. Book 1. Chapter 9.